0: Greetings, everybody. CJ here, back with the second 2020 DHP Halloween episode. In the first one, which you may have already listened to that I put out yesterday, I was, of course, speaking to good friend Pete Quiñones about the horror films Fright Night and Return of the Living Dead. And for this episode, I'm going to be speaking to another good friend, Brett Venant of School Sucks, about the 1980 Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, based, of course, on Stephen King's novel of the same name. And as you will hear in this episode, despite his humble protestations to the contrary, Brett is a pretty serious Kubrick aficionado. So we talk about multiple levels of this complicated film, ranging from the esoteric to the exoteric. And as always, I highly recommend Brett's work over at School Sucks. And also just a little hat tip to Brett for making the meme that is the episode show notes over at profcj.org. And so without any further ado, my conversation with Brett Venat of School Sucks about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Happy Halloween, everybody. Hope you enjoy.
1: Happy Halloween a day early. Thanks for inviting me to celebrate it with you.
0: Yes. Well, you know, I've been wanting to do some sort of a movie discussion with you for a while because it's something that we both like to do. And um, we've just never, you know, done it simultaneously. And I know you're a real big Kubrick fan. So I thought this would be a great one to do for Halloween.
1: Yeah, so I am a big Kubrick fan, and I always realize, like looking at analyses of his movies, that I am nowhere near the biggest Kubrick fan. Uh, Kubrick fandom exists on a spectrum that goes far beyond where I am. If people are here today for conclusive answers or interpretations about anything, I... I'm probably going to disappoint them, but this is one of my uh, favorite discussions to have. And I was doing, um, I was doing a film analysis show for the School Sucks supporters for a while too. We had to put it on pause for a while, um, but yeah, it is, it is one of my favorite conversations. So thanks again for the invite. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, so, and of course, everybody can go watch something like, what was the documentary? Room 237. And there's a whole bunch of other more amateurish documentaries out there on The Shining specifically. And probably on, probably on all of Kubrick's movies, I would guess that there's like multiple documentaries with all kinds of theories as to the hidden meaning and. Esoteric stuff and whatever.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, YouTube used to just be uh, littered with this stuff. Uh, I, I don't know if some of it maybe depending on what kind of theories it presents. If if some of that content is starting to get scrubbed, uh, certainly I, I would imagine that a lot of it has moved behind the wall of age restriction. I've noticed actually that some of my videos that I never applied any age restriction to are now age restricted. So if you're not logged into YouTube, you can't see like uh, uh, some of the, the more trolly like libertarian um, short videos that I made there. They're age restricted now. So I'd assume that happened to a lot of the, the content of people like red ice radio or Jay Dyer or Jay Widener or Rob uh, Ager uh, who are the, the big names that I can think of that have done a lot of Kubrick analysis. But you can probably still find plenty of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm sure, you know, but there's a lot of levels to this film too. You know, all the crazy esoteric stuff, some of which, to my eyes, there may be something too, and some of which I think might be kind of roar shacking. Um maybe <laughs> yes. in some in some cases, you know, connecting <laughs> dots that aren't really connected and that sort of stuff. Um but but there's even just at, at the closer to the surface level, there's a lot going on in the movie. And um, have you read the book? Uh,
1: I have never read the book, but I have uh, the the best I can do for you and your audience and my audience is I've read comparisons between the book and the movie. And that is, uh, I think, one of the most initially intriguing things about Kubrick's adaptation.
0: Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I've actually read most of Stephen King's early novels, like through... You know the early '90s, and I was racking my brain trying to remember if I've ever read *The Shining*. And for a while, I was thinking, well, maybe I did back when I was like 12. You know, because that's that's when I started reading. I was like 11, 11 or 12, started re- reading Stephen King, mm. and I was like, maybe I read it way back then, and I just don't remember it very well. I don't know, but I don't think I actually read it, which would make it one of the few of his from that era. Yeah, like you, though, I, I've looked up little articles and things on Wikipedia and whatever that kind of list the important divergences between the two. And there's some interesting stuff there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. This was actually like when I was in elementary school, the, this was a form of contraband, basically, was Stephen King, Stephen King's books. So I remember like Carrie, Christine, uh, Pet Cemetery was probably the most memorable one. But I don't think The Shining ever came across my little square desk uh, back then. So uh, I was I was familiar with Stephen King, but no encounters with this story. Uh, do you mind if we like we like set the stage with just a little bit of background on Kubrick or, or some things that I think are important for people who might be like people might know of The Shining, maybe they've seen The Shining, but some people might not realize the amount of theorizing behind this film. Sure, um, go ahead. Yeah, so. One of the things is th- that you can basically just engage with most of Kubrick's movies. There might be a few exceptions, but you can engage with his movies almost endlessly. The Shining, uh, 2001, and um Eyes Wide Shut are probably the three best examples of these like really esoteric um presentations that are are really open to uh, a variety of interpretations. And I would say that Kubrick knew by the late middle of his career, which was, you know, the the late 70s, fans engaged in this practice of what is sometimes called immersive criticism. Like when you see a movie 10, 50, 100 times, he knew people were doing this over analyzing of his films, looking for hidden meaning. This probably started. Uh, around uh, 2001, which was the first film that had a lot of like um, really like symbolism or things to look for, unclear meaning. He was a little bit more direct before uh, he made 2001, and then of course a Clockwork Orange, and and even you know Barry Lyndon has some interesting subtext too. So those were the three films that preceded The Shining in 1980. Kubrick knew. His fans did this. He very likely knew that he was the subject of conspiracy theories um, at the time that he made The Shining. And uh, I think this is this is the thing that excite people about The Shining. And we did a show uh, on this, on School Sucks, back in like 2012, I think. It was called Did Stanley Kubrick Help NASA Fake the Moon Landing? I sure hope so. There's an interesting thing that after he made 2001 in 1968— there's this kind of consistent theme that runs through all of his films. And I would describe it as like a drive for the protagonist or the the central figure, even if it's hard to make that person a protagonist, to ascend to what they see as a better group, a better group they do not belong to. So there's usually some kind of uh, initiation event. Uh, an encounter, or maybe even just an, uh, an expressed or implied desire to belong to something higher or better. And <laughs> that desire in the pursuit of that desire is usually followed by a series of unpleasant discoveries and events. So if you look at um, all of the films that, and I could just do this really quickly, that followed uh, 2001, which was this turning point in his career. Because if you look at before 2001, it's almost like the the main characters are trying to like break away from mores or or what's expected of them. Lolita is a good example of this. This this really exists in Doctor Strangelove. They're they're rebellious films. Spartacus paths of glory are all the opposite of like somebody trying to belong to something they feel like they're supposed to belong to or or they're not good enough to belong to. But after 2001, you have the clockwork orange where Alex is like trying to, you know, through all of his, his trials and these weird like mind control experiments, he's trying to be initiated into normal, polite and healthy society. Barry Lyndon is obviously in this very class divided Victorian world where he's like a nobody comes from nothing and he's trying to ascend into the the aristocracy. The the shining, which we're gonna talk about today, you have um, even though it's like very unclear what this world actually is, but it's it's stated early on in the film, all the best people have come to this place. And and Jack Nicholson is trying to maybe figure out how he belongs to this upper class scene that goes on in the the hotel. In Full Metal Jacket, you have the whole first the whole first half of the film, which is basically a film in itself about basic training to be initiated into the military to be good enough to go fight in Vietnam. And then his final film, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, Tom Cruise, who who is in certainly the upper class and a very privileged place in society. He's a doctor, a very wealthy doctor living in Manhattan, but he sees that there's this whole other layer that even though there's like this danger, he needs to satisfy this curiosity and see what's on the other sides of these gates that he doesn't have access to. So Kubrick is very much making it, I think making it pretty clear to the audience through those five films that there's something more to see, there's some other place to get, but there is danger in actually trying to get there. And I think that's a really uh, intriguing thing that appears in all of the movies that he made after 2001, which, as far as conspiracy theorists are concerned, is the most interesting, perhaps, turning point in his career.
0: Wow. That was a heck of an intro. See, that's exactly why I wanted to talk to you about The Shining, yeah. uh, because even though you claim to, to not be a top-level Black <laughs> Kubrick expert, you know, that, that was that was the equivalent of just Um, having scott horton cut loose on foreign (laughs) (laughs) thank
1: you that's a great compliment
0: (laughs) okay so he gets the stephen king novel and you know probably most people listening are familiar with the film or the book or both um there even was the remake although i never even bothered to see that right but you know basic premise you've got jack torrance who is Recovering alcoholic, former school teacher with some family issues, and a son, Danny, who's kind of psychic, takes this job, uh, moves, I, I think, from Vermont, supposedly is where they, they were coming from, moves to Colorado and then takes this job to be the winter caretaker
1: at Yeah. this
0: big fancy old hotel. And hilarity ensues from there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, um, do you have any, any, any thoughts or insights on like why, why you think Kubrick may have, uh, latched on to, to the project? Like what, what he maybe saw in the novel?
1: I think, that- y- I don't know what he would have seen in the novel other than the best context that I can establish with the knowledge that I have his career throughout the 1970s was not particularly pleasant clockwork orange was a film that like as far as like the guardians of polite society especially in the uk they kind of went to war against it and they tried to censor it and there was some instances th- there could have been like a, a sort of synthetic moral panic about this too but there were like copycat uh, types of violence in in the UK inspired by the film. So so Kubrick withdrew for a period, and then you know he wanted to make this film about Napoleon. Uh, it eventually became uh, Barry Lyndon, and it, it, like Barry Lyndon is probably I would say the least watch, least appreciated Kubrick film. It just kind of like follows this guy through Victorian society. He's kind of a grifter. It's a really tragic story and it's really long and it's really really slow but it is just an absolute masterpiece of a film and um, you know it's a period piece it was a ton of work it was lit by candlelight which is another like point of curiosity around Kubrick you had to get these special Zeiss lenses to actually be able to shoot the film by candlelight but um its critical reception was like very blah so by the time the end of the decade rolled around I think he actually wanted to, suffering the the attacks related to Clockwork Orange and the, the panning of Barry Lyndon. He wanted to make a blockbuster film, and I think part of his possible troll was that he wanted to use a novel of who was, at the time, a person becoming a very popular author, but basically just take the title and some of like the uh set and setting stuff and then do completely his own thing with it right to smuggle in a whole bunch of other stuff even if it is just trying to confound viewers and and produce this thing that you can just sort of engage with endlessly and go down all of these different rabbit holes i think uh from like uh like a career motivation it was to make a blockbuster film and to use Stephen King's novel which was obviously very popular as a a vehicle interesting choice of words cuz that's like um let that, another thing that created a lot of like uh, discussion was Uh, kubrick using a, a yellow volkswagen to take them to the hotel along that road well in the novel it's a red volkswagen and then later in the film the shining you see like a a red volkswagen crashed on the side of the road and people have said that's like oh kubrick basically saying f you to stephen king this is this is my thing now uh but he uses the shining as a vehicle to tell some other story that he wants to tell with the claim as far as the public is concerned that it's the movie version of this book you loved.
0: Yeah, and from what I've seen, it seems like Stephen King himself has had like many different feelings and statements and reactions over the years when asked about the film and he's he said some things in interviews and whatever that are um, you know, pretty negative about the film and then other places he's said positive things. So it seems like he he has very uh, mixed, mixed feelings that that perhaps also change over time as far as whether he likes the film or not. I, I, I it seems like because I I read through you know a number of Stephen King's comments on the film over the past few days, and it seems like when he's looking at it as just a a film adaptation of his novel, he doesn't like it because it's because there's you know so many divergences. But it seems like at the same time though, when he's looking at it. Just as a as a standalone thing, right, and not thinking of it as oh, this is my novel. Um, that he actually is kind of positive on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I I can get that. I think maybe he like appreciates the feat, uh, maybe in some way that he wouldn't even want to admit. By the way, I think he was behind the television adaptation, which which he saw as being like truer to his actual story. Um, but uh, like I said earlier, I think going through or, or at least understanding the departures are like an entry point to maybe like being in a position to evaluate what Kubrick was, was trying to do, even if you never come to anything conclusive. So I... um. I found this. uh, I have a bunch of notes because we were going to do a whole series about Kubrick like five years ago. It never actually happened. But um, I I pulled a bunch of these like blogs that had had written about the film. And there was this one guy, Johnny 53. And he just writes a little bit about comparing the movie to the novel. Can I just read uh, like a like a paragraph or, or so of this? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. He says, I can't think of any other movie where reading the source novel was so enlightening. Many writers skim the surface when trying to compare the novel with the movie and then simply give up. You absolutely cannot have a thorough understanding of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining without looking at what he did to Stephen King's story. Ignoring the novel is crazy. He didn't randomly alter things from the novel, as many readers think. He inverted them. In the novel, they're brought to the Overlook Hotel in a red Volkswagen, like I talked about, and have a yellow snowmobile up to the hotel. In the movie, they're brought to the Overlook in a yellow Volkswagen and have a red snowcat up to the hotel. They're also saved by a red snowcat. In the movie, Jack throws his yellow ball, and in the novel, Danny plays with his red ball. Stanley Kubrick didn't just change the colors. He inverted the colors uh, Stephen King uses in the novel for these major props. Look at once, uh, look once at the Volkswagen in the opening credits of the movie. You'll never forget that yellow color. Ask anyone who's seen the film. Uh, they will be able to tell you what color the Volkswagen is. Ask anyone who's read the novel and they probably won't. And he just goes on and on with all of these departures. And he says that Kubrick is being so deliberate, including the crashed red Volkswagen scene, that he wants the viewer of this film who might have been very loyal and appreciative of King's novel to know. This is something different, like almost implanting in their subconscious, like, why would he change that? Like, I remember that from that didn't need to be changed. Why would it be the opposite? So he's in a lot of the things that he does in the film and even with like set design and like continuity, like what appear to be continuity areas. He's creating this unrest in the people who are who are watching the movie. Uh, And and again, like, the movie is very, very slow-paced. Almost nothing that would scare you happens in the first 45 minutes. And I think the whole film is... Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly long film. It's like 140 minutes. But, like, the first 45, there's... Jack doesn't start to turn until about the 45-minute mark. So it's a fairly slow-paced film that during that time... there's all these things that are just presenting this like uneasiness or something isn't right, or you need to look closer at this. And I I always thought that was interesting.
0: Yeah. It's definitely a masterpiece of like slowly building ominous tension over a long stretch of time. There's, There's not many movies, especially these days that are made that way. If someone was trying to make it today, they would probably go nuts earlier on with jump scares and CGI, Uh, ghosts and you know just kind of going for the cheap add sort of horror instead of that that slow tension i I have to say that the one thing that i'm not so sure that jack nicholson was the best choice for jack torrance Mm -hmm. and and the reason i say that is because he's jack nicholson so he kind of seems crazy even in the beginning, when he's not, you know, really saying or doing anything that's off the wall, but there's a there's sort of a, a menace and a craziness to just Jack Nicholson a lot of the time in general. Yeah, he, he always seems a bit off. And so, I, honestly, I, I felt like it, it might have been better to get an actor who is better able to just play it straight when he needs to, but then who can also, you know, do a good job being unhinged when that happens. So that there would have been more of a like a real dramatic transition over the movie.
1: Yeah, um, but it also it, it but it does the thing that I say that he's trying to do too, where it's like Jack Nicholson in this movie is an A list actor, right? Stanley Kubrick was somebody who always liked to kind of like push people around, like yeah, like. If you see the behind the scenes like Stanley Kubrick's daughter shot a bunch of behind the scenes footage of this movie, he is absolutely abusing Shelley Duvall. Like her hair was falling out. Uh he was doing things to like deliberately scare her and cause her anxiety to get this performance from her. So he would do things like this that were, you know, kind of twisted. Like lots of people aside from maybe like Kirk Douglas, I don't think a lot of people worked with him more than once. Nicholson was a was an A-list actor who could basically demand anything that he wanted. So yeah, it was an interesting choice to put this guy who you're also trying to establish his sanity at the beginning of the movie, but like he's just coming off one of the greatest roles of his career in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest where he's in a mental institution, right? So it's a very odd choice for somebody who wants to be like, doesn't want to deal with divas and and wants to be very demanding and wants to shoot one scene a hundred times. Like picking an A-list Academy Award nominee is, it, it is probably like asking for trouble. But also the fact that Nicholson, yeah, he, he's kind of a crazy guy. Uh, and had just recently played crazy roles, it's almost like when you see him present as like calm and normal at the beginning of this film, you're uneasy about the fact that this is not it's not staying this way, even if you've never read the book.
0: Yeah, I mean he, he sort of reminds me a little bit of Nicolas Cage in the sense that he's not good <laughs> at playing not crazy. You know? right, yeah. he, like the, the more he tries to pretend he's totally normal insane, the more the more unconvincing it is in a way. Um, right. But in in terms of, you know just sort of the, the nuts and bolts, right? We've got Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, as, as we've mentioned. Shelley Duvall as his wife, Wendy. We mentioned her before. Danny Lloyd as Danny Torrance. It's interesting that um, that Jack plays Jack and Danny plays Danny, right? I mean, I'm assuming that's coincidence, but with Kubrick, I guess you never know for sure. Um, and then we've got Scatman Crothers. Yes. Right? As as Dick Halloran, the chef who also has The Shining, right? And who has that connection mm-hmm. with Danny. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Halloran in the film, like as a character and 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 what's going on there?
1: The only, and like, I can't speak to the book because I know that like the, the, the Shining ability, like more people possess it in the book, but it's limited to just this dialogue between Halloran and Danny in the film. I think... He's there to convey uh, meaning to Danny's experience that Danny couldn't have conveyed to the audience, but like that's kind of a just a stab at it because obviously Kubrick leaves so many things up to you know your um, imagination, and like you're you're left to try and figure out so many things in this story that it's almost like if if you didn't get that. Uh, I, I don't know that it would have made the movie any more abstruse than it already is, but I, I think like that's, that's the function that he at least serves in the, in the narrative is to, is to explain this to Danny.
0: Right. The the thing that bothered me and just rewatching this a couple of days ago, uh, for the first time in at least a few years, you know, I've seen it a bunch of times, like growing up and stuff, but it had probably been maybe even four or five years since the last time I watched the film. Yeah. And what, what I thought about in regard to Halloran is, and maybe it's different in the book, but I felt like in the movie, he's kind of useless other than, as you were saying, as like an exp- exposition, uh, you know, sort of a function. Right. Because if you look at all the, the amount of time that during the film, when it cuts away to him, right, vacationing in Florida and him eventually getting reason to believe that things were, were starting to go off the rails back at the overlook and him then, you know, cutting his trip short and taking a plane and, you know, driving the snow cat out to the hotel in, in, in all the crazy weather and whatever to try and save the day. But he go, he, there's all this time spent on him doing all these extraordinary things to try and get to the overlook, but he gets there. He's an old man by himself. Yeah. He's unarmed. Yeah. And he walks into the place just kind of saying, hello, is anybody there? And then almost immediately gets killed. Right. And I I know in the novel, it's he gets like badly wounded, but doesn't get killed. I don't know if there's any more difference in the novel in terms of like, does he do anything useful? In other words, like he doesn't even really like slow Jack down for more than a handful of seconds. I don't know that something about that bugged me, and and maybe that was intentional. Maybe it was uh, like deliberately designed to give you some sort of a sense that oh, he's gonna, if not save the day, at least kind of help in some significant way. But he ends up being pretty useless.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting too that it, it relates to a lot of things, and 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 I don't have a, a good answer to say like no, this is his use because the film is kind of a maze. Right. There's a maze in the film. It's not in the book. The book has like um, hedge animals, like animals carved out of the hedges that move around. But in the movie, it's this hedge maze. So, right. We have a maze. Um, The hotel It's kind of a maze. One thing that people have pointed out is that, like, spatially, the hotel doesn't make any sense. Um, You know, Jack Nicholson walks in for his interview at the beginning of the film. He makes a left turn into what looks like the middle of the hotel. He goes into a room and there's a window there where you can see the outside. Now, this certainly buildings are weird shapes. This certainly could be possible, but it's, it's disorienting. Uh, things move around. Like there's, there's furniture and rugs. There's like a bearskin rug that disappears and reappears a couple of times in a scene. These are not mistakes that Kubrick would typically make. There's furniture behind Jack in certain scenes that disappear and, and reappear. So you have this like maze, confusion, disorientation, and like one thing about Mazes is they have dead ends, right? So you, you're you taken somewhere with somebody and then it's just like an axe to the chest with no resolution and no further revelation about what they are. And th- this kind of relates to opening a door to some of the other uh, strange theories about uh, the film's meaning. There's this character named Bill Watson. Nobody knows who I'm talking about. Do you know who Bill Watson is? No. Right. He's in the film... In a couple of different scenes, in a couple of different, like, clean but uninteresting outfits, at the beginning, when Jack has his interview, Ullman, the guy who, uh, I guess, is the administrator at the hotel, he's dressed in, like, red, white, and blue, and he's got that kind of fluffy hair. He's the guy who interviews Jack for the job initially. Uh, At the beginning of the interview, he says to his secretary, send in Bill Watson. And this other guy just comes in and uh, Ullman says, this is Jack. He's going to be, he's, you know, he's here about the caretaker job. And this Watson guy goes, oh, and he sits there for the interview and doesn't say anything. And then when they come back for the orientation, Jack comes back to the hotel with his wife and and their son and they're being walked around. This Watson guy is there too, not saying anything. But it's kind of like, what is this guy doing? What is he for? He's there for some reason, at the very least, to lead you down some path or make you think about something or to do something. Because even though um, Dick Halloran is a dead end, he he accomplishes something. He serves a purpose in the film. So who is this Watson guy? it kind of opens the door to like, is he some kind of handler? Is he some kind of government person? Is he some kind of observer of something? Uh, But that's all just basically, uh, you know, left for investigation as to what he's doing.
0: I'd be curious to know if he's a character in the novel and if in the novel he does anything because you know how Stephen King, obviously famous for, often giving intricate backstories and inner monologues, even of fairly minor characters in a lot of his novels, right? We yeah. have all these intricate details about, you know, what's going on in their head and their backstory and whatever like that. And so I wonder if in the novel, A, if he's in there, and B, if he is, if there's, if there's more to him there, or is he a pure invention by Kubrick? Uh, he's
1: in the novel, and he is uh, the ancestor of the man who built the Overlook Hotel. Right. He has been a member of the hotel. This is from the the fan wiki on um, and this is directly the novel because it's a Stephen King fan wiki. He's been a member of the hotel since he was an infant. He is the on season caretaker on the hotel and mainly runs the boiler. Still is curious that in the film he's never identified. Right. So for those who have only seen the film, he becomes this figure of great mystery and great intrigue because it's never identified who he is. Um, Are you supposed to? He, he also is like a total departure from how he looks. Uh, In the book, he's fat. In the movie, he's like a very slight kind of man. So, again, it's another departure. And in the movie, he's not identified. So I think it leaves a lot of people saying, what is this guy there to do?
0: Yeah. Well, with Kubrick and all of the different, you know, he's obviously a very, very meticulous filmmaker and a very visual, visually meticulous filmmaker. It always makes me wonder, like, does he deliberately when he's, you know, putting out his, his hidden meanings and, and esoteric stuff, you know, m- much of which, you know, I do think there's something too. But does he also either out of a sense almost of like playfulness or, or trolling or like, you know, just sort of fucking with the audience um, or as red herrings to throw people off? you know, from other things, does he sometimes put things out there deliberately that don't really have, at least in his intention, any real significance, but just to like, in in other words, was he sitting around going, I'm going to throw this Bill Watson guy in there and make him do nothing. And uh, it'll give me great satisfaction to know that, viewers of this film will be like scratching their head and trying to attach all kinds of deep meaning to this guy. And, you know,
1: I think there's a really important part of that. I think he liked the fact that his films were studied. And I think the shining is the first possibly it's the first like exposition of his relationship with his audience where uh, he knows that people are like hunting for this deeper meaning. Um, And it's possibly, and he also knows, like I said, he, he, might have uh, likely knew, I I shouldn't say this for sure, that he was the subject of a conspiracy theory about the moon landing. Possibly, again, this is just my theory based on the preponderance of different interpretations about what The Shining is and what The Shining means, that he was trying to put a lot of stuff to basically for that immersive analyst to have like a choose-your-own-adventure with this film. That to a certain extent is messing with people. I don't know if the film like coalesces like in all these different weird things, if it all coalesces into like a singular meaning, I think it's kind of like what do you what scares you the most um, about what might be true and maybe you can find it in this film I think that's part of it
0: so so to some degree he he almost might be deliberately Making some amount of the film anyway, almost kind of like a film version of a Rorschach inkblot. I think so. Then, yeah, that then people will kind of map onto it what they want to see.
1: Right. So, so one of the things I learned about from my friend, who I did a, the the film analysis show for a while, and he worked in in, in filmmaking, was the language. Like the, the the a filmmaker will build basically a visual grammar. Um, often in films, that you're supposed to kind of like refer back to in a way to like immediately achieve understanding of something. Like it's a bridge between the filmmaker and the viewer that we're going to make by showing you something early on in the film as, uh, you know, establishing it that this is the visual language of the film. So once the Warner Brothers thing disappears uh, and you get that first helicopter shot. Uh, It's going to be like several different cuts that follow the yellow Volkswagen through this winding mountain road to the hotel. But before you see the Volkswagen, it's a long um, helicopter shot over a lake where the lake is like perfectly Mirroring the surrounding landscape, and like in 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 the like the first few uh, frames or the first not the first few frames first few seconds, there's a little island in the lake that's like perfectly reflected. That makes it even more clear that the lake is a mirror, right? The lake perfectly mirrors the landscape. So just check back with that idea as the film goes on, but most of the most intriguing or shocking or revealing things in the film for the audience and the characters happen through mirrors. If you think about when Jack first wanders into this other world where people know who he is and there's a bartender to serve him drinks, he walks into that. It's um, the gold room. Right? The the Colorado Lounge is where he types. The Gold Room is where the those like dinner parties and that bar is. He walks up and he sits down um at an empty bar with no liquor in it, and he starts talking to himself in a mirror. And then that whole other world appears. Uh mirrors are used in the the bathroom scene where he's talking to Grady, who he was told was the former um caretaker. Uh Danny. Obviously, probably the most iconic scene in the entire film, where Danny writes red rum on the door, it's not revealed what it is until Shelley Duvall sees it in a mirror. So, like, so much of the revelation in the film is done through mirrors, so whether that is, like, Kubrick's opening shot of the Mirror Lake is just saying, hey, mirrors are a thing here, that's part of the visual language of this film, or this film is a mirror, Right, which kind of serves as what I was saying is like, hey, scared people who came to see this horror film, you'll find the things uh, you're afraid of by watching it. You'll find the things that trouble you in it. So, if we wanted to just like go through a few of the the popular uh, themes people have, said, or the popular theories, uh, it it's somehow a metaphor of the Holocaust. It's about demonic possession. It's about mind control. It's about the. Uh, it's about economic collapse through the abandonment of the gold standard. It's about um, and just to, to kind of like generalize the Apollo hoax one. It's about distrusting your government. So it gives you all these diff- different opportunities to like cash in uh, as a as a paranoid viewer on things you might be afraid of. But it's all there. It's a buffet, right? It's like yeah, yeah. Well.
0: And and another one is that's that's very, you know, common and popular is the idea that he's making various points about like the American conquest of the West and of Native Americans and all of that. Right. You've got I don't think there are any Native Americans depicted in the film, but, you know, famously, and this is almost like a cliche now, but. The hotel is built on an Indian burial ground. Right. And when they're giving the backstory, I think during Jack's interview for the job, they they mentioned that it's on an Indian burial ground and, and that there were even some attacks by Indians in the early 1900s because they were you know, pissed off that these these white guys are building a hotel in their burial ground. Right. And then there's there's. Obviously, as you know, there's many images, right, of like Native American art and, you know, other things like that at various points in the hotel.
1: The Calumet so, uh, stuff in the in the dry goods uh, storage room. There's the right. Calumet with the Indian on it. Um, when he sits down at the bar, he says to the bartender, white man's burden for it's kind of hard to identify why.
0: Yeah, that that's one of the weirdest lines that really jumped out to me that, you know, I don't think I had noticed that that quick little line on previous viewings of the movie. But, you know, that's that's a poem that when I teach in history class, the, you know, U.S. war against the Philippines, right, to take them over after the Spanish American War, um, I share with my students the white man's burden, right, because Kipling wrote that poem. His audience was America. He was writing that to America, basically saying, come on, America, step up like the uh, British Empire and kind of between the two of us great Anglo-Saxon empires, we can really rule the world even better. Kind yeah. of thing. Yep. And so that definitely jumped out at, at me watching the film recently. I was like, whoa, wait, what? Did I just hear that? That's and it, and it seems out of place.
1: Yeah, it does. And there's some weird Mayan symbolism, too, like the the tea, that really fat tea in one of the uh, title posters. Where you kind of see the screaming, it's like a yellow background, and then the The Shining is in black, and the T in the is very big. Uh, that's a that's a Mayan symbol. So um, yeah, I mean, I think once you you give people an open door to start trying to find the things, it, it, it's like could the film be that masterfully organized? Where it's like one time, one time, I Stanley Kubrick am going to hit you over the head. With some symbolism, or or something that's going to like inspire your your curiosity or your suspicion about what's going on here, and then you're going to go on a treasure hunt through this film, finding all of these different you know, these different elements that back up, uh, you know this this initial belief that you have that this is what the film is actually about. It was one of my criticisms of. You know, I remember watching like, you know, because back, anybody can make a YouTube video. So I was watching some YouTube video about how it was, you know, his confession that he faked the moon landing. Now, obviously, you have this scene, and it's about an hour into the film, where Danny is playing on this carpet. And the carpet pattern looks like a launch pad. He stands up. He's wearing a homemade Apollo 11 sweater he walks to room 237 which they say it's earth to the moon 237,000 miles it's about that it's 238 but whatever it wasn't the it wasn't the room number in the book uh, he goes there and then he won't talk after he won't talk to anybody after that that's pretty hitting you over the head with something but then, like the, the YouTube video that I was being critical of uh, a minute ago was just like, look at these two doorways and how either side is in 11. That's where Apollo 11. It's kind of like forces the viewer into this hunt to find more of the things that they were looking for. Um, now, I'm, I'm just doing a surface skim of that. Jay w- Widener is his name, uh, W E I D E N E R, has done a lot of really good. Uh, work on this uh and he's also pointed out that like um you know jack keeps obsessing about like the obligations that he has to these people uh danny silence danny sweater like he, he has he has a lot of um uh evidence of this and he says that the deviations from the book are kind of the clue to that's the thing you're supposed to look for but um You know, that's that's one of uh, several theories. You know, uh, did you did you look into like the the gold and the Federal Reserve angle on this? I saw something
0: a a little reference to that somewhere, but it was one of those things I I didn't have the time to follow up on and and dig more into that.
1: I thought you would like this, too, where this is all kind of like passed over in the film. But in the book, like the, the scrapbook is a big thing. The overlooked scrapbook. And, um, you know, they talk uh, during the tour about like all the best people came here. This is where the jet set came before that was even a thing. And the scrapbook has, um, you know, stories about like Wilson, the Fed, World War One. He takes out cash in the gold room. He takes out cash. And Lloyd, the bartender, says, uh, you know, Jack does this uh, to buy a drink. And the bartender says, your money is no good here. And then he says something like, orders from the House. And people have said, you know, this is Colonel Edward Mendel House, who pressured Wilson to um, to put the Federal Reserve in place. There's the picture at the end of the movie where Jack Nicholson is posing in this group photo from 1921, like Baphomet. And everybody says it's Woodrow Wilson standing right over his shoulder in the photo. Have you seen that?
0: No, no, no. Now, now I'll have to go back and... And look at that that picture at the end again to see if I can I can spot it. So it's one I didn't even look for.
1: As people are listening, if you have a, a safe way to do this, I mean you can you can just uh, duck, duck, go, image search uh, anything that we're talking about. But uh, CJ, I'm going to share a screen with you here, and we're just going to jump to that so we can take a look at it. Because um, I would I'd like to get your reaction. So uh, you should now be able to see the film and. Jumping into okay, towards the last frame. So at the end of the film, it zooms in on this picture. And there's Jack Nicholson doing this Baphomet pose. And this guy behind him who is reaching out to grab his arm... Um, you know, this is pre-Photoshop. This is the 70s. This is made, so this is all airbrushed to look a certain way. Whatever this picture is, to put Jack Nicholson into it, they say that this guy reaching out to grab his arm is a young Woodrow Wilson. But uh, um,
0: I, I'm dubious of that.
1: Yeah, I, I am too. Uh, that does I, not look like him to me. But if you if you go through and you just look at um. <laughs> it's just like there's so many different directions to go like like a lot of the uh pictures that hang on the wall uh behind him especially as they uh walk through the hotel and i'm just uh audio listeners jumping through the film and looking for some of this stuff now there there's definitely uh, a lot of things to pay attention to and things to look at a little more closely the um the indian symbolism or the indian art is everywhere they, they, you know, I mean, at the beginning of the book, she's she's sitting there or at the beginning of the movie as Jack's getting uh, his interview done and Wendy and uh, Danny are back at home. She's sitting there at the kitchen table reading Catcher in the Rye, which is like, you know, why? You know, the Catcher in the Rye. You ever see Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson where he's, tr- oh, yeah. uh, and he's going around trying to collect all the copies of Catcher in the Rye because it's what they use to uh, activate people from uh NK Ultra and one right. of the
0: yeah it's like the Manchurian candidate trigger yeah kind of a thing because supposedly you know several different high profile assassins or would be assassins have had a copy on them or something like that.
1: Yeah. So I-, I mean there there's uh you can see in this frame if you look closely the magazine that he's reading is Playgirl uh sitting on the table there interesting choice uh, sitting on the chair so there's uh we and we can get to that too this guy this watson in the background who never really does anything uh but there is also a scene when danny is in the game room and um i'm actually just going to turn the volume down and let this play and there is a poster behind him that says monarch which was uh one of the mk ultra programs uh when he first sees the twins behind them over their shoulder there is this poster uh for monarch uh which is a ski area in Colorado but during the interview jack is told by the hotel administrator that there is no skiing in the area so the fact that this poster is there is also just kind of intriguing another rabbit hole that people can go down if they want to it's also like you keep seeing these what appear to be identical twin girls and when the hotel administrator tells Jack about this caretaker went crazy and killed his family, the daughters were different ages. So now it's like the question of like, well, who who are these girls actually? Endless rabbit holes in this film. Uh, you know the the other angle as far as like things to be afraid of, uh, a demonic possession. Jay Dyer did a lot of work on this. Um, or, or this is uh, this is covered in the movie, but like the hotel has this ability to basically animate past tragedies into current dangerous threats and the hotel, because Danny has this ability, it's like trying to possess him, but it fails. So it winds up possessing Jack, but all of this is still a distraction from, from some other kind of story that, that Kubrick is trying to get at, but never really quite reveal. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of different directions to go. But if anything else like st- st- stood out for you, I'd I'd be happy to hear about it.
0: Again, you know, it's always interesting when you rewatch a movie that you've seen a bunch of times but haven't seen in a long time. Not only will you you notice things you didn't notice before, but like you're a different you, and you're you know in a different year and a different stage of your life and all that. Oh so yeah. What what really struck me watching this now is it's almost the perfect 2020 horror film. In in the era of COVID madness and lockdowns and all this, it struck me that this might be the most perfect movie to serve as kind of a metaphor for that because you think about what happens, you've got this family who, you know, they take this this job where the three of them are basically going to be isolated no matter what because the hotel's closed and they're just sort of, you know, caretakers of this empty hotel. But then you get the giant snowstorm that completely snows the place in. And obviously, like so many horror movies, a big part of the story is things gradually getting more and more uh, closed in and claustrophobic and isolated and whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, you know, like the story themes, and um, most of these I I presume are in King's novel, and Kubrick maybe you know dealt with them differently and emphasize and de-emphasize some of them differently than King had. But I think the basic story what you've got is you've got uh, isolation. You've got cabin fever. You've got mental illness. You've got addiction. And if you, if you look around at 2020 America and, and much of the world, honestly, given all the COVID madness, like that's what you've got. You've got, um, you got a lot of people whose mental health often wasn't great to begin with, who have been, you know, isolated, locked down, Stuck in their homes. I mean, some places reopened quicker than others and whatever like that. But I mean, some places like California is still on total zombie apocalypse shutdown. Yeah. And then the evidence is already coming out that, you know, alcoholism is up, drug overdoses are up, suicides are up, domestic abuse is up, child abuse is up, people are, are losing their minds. And so I don't know. That was just to me one of the biggest things that I kept coming back to in my head as I was rewatching the film the other day was this is could be seen as an allegory of 2020. Not that I'm, I'm saying that Kubrick, you know, 40 years ago was anticipating this of course, but it just really strikes a chord I think. And, and, and any listener who hasn't who's familiar with this film, who hasn't watched it in a long time um, maybe, you know, go watch it in 2020 and it'll kind of strike a deeper, a deeper chord with these sorts of themes.
1: Yeah, um, it, it does throw. I, I mean, th- those. I, I think in just like the most overt aspects of the story, it's all there, and some of those things give you like further paths to go down. Like the the theme, uh, another theme in the film is obviously child abuse. Right? Um, we never really see Jack hurt Wendy, but part of the backstory is that like. Danny has this possible trauma, like Jack has a history of hurting his son, Danny. Danny has this entity called Tony that he talks to using his finger. And uh, Tony's role, this imaginary friend, or we think is imaginary appears to be to help Danny it's something that is visible to Danny in the novel but not in the in the film but I mean this is definitely something um that could be like the product of some dissociative disorder that he has as a where he's like you know separating parts of his personality which again yes does point at mind control which was like a supposed feature of MK Ultra that the personality would be able to fracture or break off but he has this separate this this identity that doesn't seem to be completely separate from him like an imaginary friend. Um, and this is at the beginning of the film when he's doing this thing at the kitchen table with his mom. How does Tony feel about going to the hotel for the winter? And, you know, this tension builds around Tony doesn't want to go. Tony's afraid to go. Wendy knows, obviously, that that's Danny. Tony is Danny. And that's like a matter of concern for her. You know, I'll come back to the to the Playgirl thing too, which is like, what do, what is that pointing at as far as uh, types of uh, abuse? Um, I mean, not that you know, play a person reading Playgirl, but a man reading a magazine for women with naked men in it that for some reason is being displayed prominently in a hotel lobby where families are is bizarre. It just makes no sense, right? But we definitely see that this is the magazine that he's holding. Uh, and he kind of puts it down in the chair, and nobody really acknowledges it. And again, you know, that takes us back to, in some ways, I think it it opens doors to uh, the abuse thing. is what opens the doors to mind control, and mind control opens doors to the occult, and maybe it is just this this endless cascade of doors opening to deeper and darker places. But yeah, I mean, I never when when we started talking about doing that, I never thought uh, about the the allegory uh of this time that the movie actually is and i was watching it i was watching it this morning and i look out the window and it's it just we we're getting our first snow here as uh <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> as i'm getting like uh, to the end of the first act of the film
0: yeah i mean a, a lot of people have been you know stuck in their home for x number of months with their family and let's face it a lot of people don't have great relationships with their families to begin with and you stick them, you know, isolated long enough to get cabin fever and whatever, and it's just a recipe for madness is what I see. I, I, I see a, a good chunk of the country seems to be mentally ill on some level right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're not all necessarily walking down the path of eventually trying to axe murder their their wife and child, but um, <laughs> a few of them might be. And, you know, for me, I mean... I generally have a pretty good relationship with my wife and kids and I like actually enjoy spending time with them. So for me, like that's one of the, been one of the least annoying parts of the lockdown. But yeah. Even so, you know, occasionally you get on each other's nerves or whatever. And, you know, Florida has been reopened to a large degree for a while. So it's not, it's not like we're still in full lockdown here or anything, but nonetheless, a lot of things are still closed or, you know, not, not up and running. And, you know, we're not going out as much as we used to. And I could I could just see, you know, the somebody who maybe had more preexisting mental issues than I do, and who maybe had more of a messed up relationship with their their wife and kids or whatever. I, I can just see how this is a perfect storm to um, cause them to go off the rails somehow. And and that that's something that the movie and I would presume the book does really well. Although one of the things, um, as far as I understand it, is one of the differences of how the book versus the movie handles some of these themes is seems like from what I've read that in the book, there's a greater role for the alcoholism of Jack, whereas Mm -hmm. in the film, it's definitely there, right? They definitely, they talk about it. They show it. There's the the scene with the bartender that obviously has a lot of significance to that, but it, it sounds like from what I've read about differences between the, the movie and the book, that in the book, it's a bigger deal. And of course, King himself struggling with alcohol and drug addiction at the time. Uh, so that, that makes sense. But I, I almost kind of wish that the, the movie had done more with that somehow. Um, because it's like this sort of perfect storm, right? Of this guy who's, who's clearly troubled, who's got, got an addiction problem. He had been, I think the film says only been, uh, sober for like four or five months, something like that before this
1: happened. Yeah. So, like five or six. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, not, not a real long time. And, and by the way, the sequel to this, I think it's Dr. Sleep that came out yeah. pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Overall, I, I was pretty positive on that with, with Ewan McGregor and all that. I, I thought it was mostly pretty good. And that definitely deals with, with addiction to a greater extent as well. Cause they've got, you know, Ewan McGregor as, as grown up Danny. And one of the things I liked about Dr. Sleep is it did a great job, I think, of dealing with things like the long term effects of childhood trauma. Yeah right? Because Danny, grown up, is clearly very troubled and, you know, starts off the film extremely, uh, you know, alcoholic and all that stuff. And um, I mean, there's so much going on in, in the film. It's already a pretty long film as it is. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to crap on it too much. I just, I just sort of felt like there, there could have been a bigger role played with the theme of kind of struggling with addiction than there is.
1: I think maybe you have to kind of find it too, because one of the things that I thought was kind of this cruel irony or misdirect is that the film, considering the setting that it's kind of bound to by the book, right, is as ex- expansive as possible. The hotel is preposterously huge and kind of nonsensical in its layout. It is it- itself a maze, a labyrinth, right? Um The things that could be lurking in the hotel, that you're hinted towards looking for in the hotel, uh, demonic possession, who are these twins, who is this corpse uh, uh, old woman in in the bathtub, what is this river of blood, so you go from the massive hotel... And all of its potential horrors, to the grounds that are, you know, basically endless, to the landscapes that Kubrick uses to set the scene at the beginning of the film, you have all of this distance and expanse. And in the end, is it that it's just a problem that exists between a man's ears, right? That's kind of the the irony or the misdirection of it. It's like here's a guy who's six months sober. Who's put into a state of confinement and isolation, and he slowly loses his mind. And the way Nicholson plays the part, you know, going from agitation to detachment to um, the inability to distinguish what's real. Uh, You know, when Danny comes back from room 237 and Jack has just had this nightmare in the Colorado room and Wendy's like trying to comfort Jack and Danny walks up and he won't talk, but he has this very clear mark on his neck. And Wendy accuses, she said, you did this to him because who else would be there? And it's almost like, you know, Jack has this look on his face where he doesn't know if he did it or not. And here we are, you know, this is like almost halfway through the film, and he's lost his ability to distinguish between what's real and what isn't. And we only see that get, you know, more pronounced as as the film goes on. So it's kind of like Kubrick is creating this huge world for you to look in all of these different places for, like, what is the biggest threat to you when the truth is it's your sanity. And it's like when you don't take care of yourself and you don't communicate with the people around you. Uh, And you put yourself in some kind of uh, tense, uncomfortable, unfamiliar, isolated, confined situation, you go nuts. So it's a plenty scary enough movie on its own about the circumstances of both time and place uh, that would lead to a person who's kind of already on the edge and doesn't know it just losing his fucking mind, you know? And I mean, that's what you see. That's basically what you see. And it gets worse uh, throughout the film. So... I don't know. I think that, you know, Kubrick while his movies did often have these grand suggestions or things that you maybe should look for. Uh he also does a lot of really good like studies of characters. And I th- I think that is is very clear here too, but you you're, you're kind of led away in this weird irony. You're like led away from looking like we all are um you know, we wake up to the world and we say, "Okay, we solve the problems of the world by projecting our energy and attention as far away from ourselves as we can." This is wildly popular right now, but I've been observing this—you um, know—my whole political, uh, philosophical life, and 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 I've done this. You know, uh, put energy and attention into things that were way beyond my control, and it's it's almost like that's where Kubrick points us is away from the the torture that might just be in jack torrance's head i i don't know i think that's interesting that he creates this giant world for us to wander through and jack who were at the beginning of the film we're supposed to be focused as like he's the central figure he just becomes another ghoul in this maze
0: yeah i think that that's a good point and it makes me think of you know in horror movies there's usually it's one of two archetypes as far as like where the evil is there's the horror film or novel or whatever where the evil is outside and that in which it's coming from within somehow and it seems like the film does a good job of blurring and confusing the two and and ultimately leaving it deliberately ambiguous because you can also look at the story as basically just a really extra crazy haunted house story Mm -hmm. where maybe it is this crazy hotel built on an Indian burial ground where all sorts of strange stuff has happened that actually is. And and this could also tie into, you know, possibilities of of demonic possession or whatever, that it's that the evil ultimately is coming from outside. Or as you were as you were saying, you you could clearly interpret it as that it's mostly or even entirely coming from within Jack uh, himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like the ambiguity there. And of course, there's so much, um, ambiguous about this film, which is probably why it's, it's so eerie, even though, you know, not, not that many really like big, crazy, scary things happen. Only, only a handful do. But, um, another theme I, I wanted to mention that is clearly like there. It's, it's not one that you have to, to go reading between the lines at all for, And, and it's another one that I'm, I'm pretty sure is probably front and center in the novel, maybe even more so than in the film. But that just, again, because of the stage I'm at in my life and of, you know, the different experiences I've had since watching this movie, you know, as a kid and a teenager and whatever um, is the theme of the frustrated creative, mm. right. That part of the thing with Jack is, he wants to be a writer. He wants to be a novelist. And it deals with with writer's block and with the frustrations of a writer, as so many of King's protagonists do. Um, I think this one, though, maybe better than any other of King's writer protagonists, deals with the whole notion of writer's block and of kind of like the War of Art stuff, right? Like the Stephen Pressfield books, where... It's like you really have to fight resistance to be creative. And, you know, you could very easily end up throwing a ball against a wall when you should be writing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that part of what's driving Jack's inner demons is that he is unwilling or unable to do the work, right? As Stephen Pressfield would say. And not not just that he's frustrated with himself because he's sort of got writer's block and he's screwing around when he should be writing, but also the difficulty of balancing, if you are a creative person and and you want to, you know, spend time writing a book or making art or playing music or whatever, and you're also a family man, mm-hmm. this is hard. This is hard. It adds an extra layer of difficulty for the creative person to potentially be frustrated by. Because as hard as it might be, you know, if you're a single person and you still have to deal with, you know, overcoming resistance and, and writer's block or whatever it is when you've got you know a spouse and a kid or kids or whatever there's like this whole extra like he does talk about responsibilities or whatever right and mm-hmm. he's he's not really being a very good father or husband but nonetheless the fact that he feels he has these duties there is adding an extra level of of distress to him and there's that scene where wendy interrupts his writing and he kind of flips out and, and basically it's like every time you come in here, it destroys my train of thought. And it, then it takes me a long time to get back into it. And as a, as a creative guy and a family man who always feels like he doesn't have enough time to do all the stuff he wants to do, that scene in particular really resonated with me where like there have been times where I've lost my patience. You know, with my wife or one of my kids or whatever, where like I'm in the middle of being hard at work, I'm writing something or or i'm I'm working on a podcast or whatever like that, and you know someone comes comes knocking on my office door to ask me something dumb that was not urgent that could have easily been you know saved for the next time I go out to get a drink or whatever, yeah, and that hasn't happened in a while in part because you know we we had good enough communication that I was able to kind of like sort of work out a deal with them of like, Hey, when I'm in my office and I got a little sign, that says do not disturb to put on the thing. Basically like, look, this isn't personal when my door is closed and this little thing is up on the door. If, unless it's an emergency, like you need me to kill someone who's breaking into the house or something like that, unless it's that level of emergency or something that's just for whatever reason, super urgent, please. Yeah wait, wait until I come out to take a break or to do something else or whatever, you know, um, don't come busting in every time you have to ask some mundane question. Whereas I've been able to to deal with that, that issue, right? That tension between being a creative person uh, and, and and having, you know, family obligations through communication. Obviously, Jack doesn't have the, the communication skills or whatever to, to deal with that, but still that just that overall theme, level 1 of the frustrated creative person right and how and Pressfield talks about this how that's often a driver of addiction yeah is a person who has all this creative energy and for whatever reason they're not putting it to its its best use or putting it to use at all that this often leads to addiction and and psychological problems but then this added layer of then having a family on top of that that makes it you know very uh tense and frustrating at times Right, so that that was just some some another theme of the movie that, you know, is, it's always there, and obviously, I had picked up on it on previous viewings, but now watching it, I was like, oh, I I get that on a deeper level than than maybe when I was a teenager.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with everything you just said, but how clear is it in the novel? I'm not sure that he's actually trying to write anything right Because I, I think the idea is like he had this incident. he was a literature teacher at a school. he had it he had an incident where he couldn't teach anymore because he has this violent temper and he had this problem with alcohol and that was related. And the uh, retreat to the seclusion of the overlook was about getting back on track to go back to doing that. How much writing? I, I don't know the answer, but in the movie, I kind of wonder if he's really trying to write anything, right? Like, what has he written? What are his ideas about writing? Uh, what, Like, what has he written before? What are his ideas about what he's going to do? He doesn't seem very um, motivated or passionate. He's, um, you know, she, his wife asks him, like, well, what are you going to write about? He's like, I don't know. You know? Um, we do learn that he doesn't actually write anything right he's just typing like he never he's just writing all work and no play makes jack a dull boy which is which is an interesting um uh another thing to explore right but yeah i'm wondering if that is just part of uh like if it's just a layer of frustration that's driving his madness or if it's um Uh, a direction or appointing you or maybe in some kind of misdirection towards something else. Hmm. I don't know.
0: Or perhaps maybe the way to think about it with him is less that he's a frustrated creative person and more that perhaps uh, he really doesn't have creativity, Mm -hmm. but he, he wants to be creative, but he just simply lacks, you know, whatever inner spark leads to that. So in a way, he's sort of banging his head against the wall, right? It's like the person who has no, uh, no ear and no feel for music who just keeps at it. Yeah. And, you know, after, after 10 years of lessons, they can kind of stumble through a half assed out of time Louie Louie. Yeah. 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 Whereas another person after, you know, six months of lessons is, is playing Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And so, so maybe that's, that's where the frustration is coming from. Not that he actually has things to say, right? Things that he wants to write that he's unable to get out, but that maybe he has nothing to say at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you kind of get the sense that. Like if you if you think about him, like the, the film positioning him in the beginning as the protagonist, right? Um, or then I guess you could you could argue that that it's Danny, but it's like you get nothing from either of them, right? You get absolutely nothing. It's like I like this person. Like Jack's dialogue with other people, including his own family, is very awkward. It's stunted. It's abrupt. You learn basically nothing about him. So it's kind of I think it's one of the reasons why he's um he's seen in the people who want to find other interpretations in this in this film even though like I I totally support all of the insights that we've both talked about here over the last uh, you know 20 minutes or so he's just a vehicle to something he's like an empty vessel right he's not likable he's not interesting he he doesn't draw the audience into um, not root for him, obviously, but like feel any kind of sorrow when he loses his mind. It's it's like I said, he just kind of recedes into the hotel as like another evil entity of many. So yeah, it's that's really curious.
0: When I have time to read fiction again, I, I definitely do want to read The Shining now, and I wonder if. In the novel, he's a more sympathetic character in any way. If he has more redeeming qualities or charm or whatever like that, that would be interesting to know. I do know, and this is something I wanted to make sure to mention because I, I feel like there's something something significant to it that I can't quite put my finger on, that one of the many differences between the novel and the movie, in the movie, of course, plot spoilers, everybody, for a 40-year-old movie, um, Jack essentially dies. Yeah. And... Dies without ever having made any sort of amends or any kind of redemption or whatever in regards to his family. Whereas in the novel, my understanding is he kind of briefly wins back his, his sanity and his decency and basically allows Wendy and Danny to escape. And then he dies when the boiler blows up and yet still, though at the end, the hotel is standing, but he's dead. Yeah. Um but but after having some amount of redemption, which is unusual for a Stephen King novel to end on a somewhat redemptive upbeat note. I mean the the hotel's still standing, obviously Wendy and, and Danny are traumatized. Yeah. But but not only are they alive, but he actually had this somewhat redemptive Jack had a redemptive moment before
1: the end. Also just a correction on something I think I said earlier Dick Halloran um does like usher Wendy and Danny out of the hotel in the book. Okay, so
0: so he does actually play a more useful role.
1: Yeah, so Kubrick, uh, Kubrick, it just dead-ended him in the movie. Hmm. So... But you know, it wasn't the only character that was dead. The same the the Bill Watson guy, who we get no explanation right. of who he is, is kind of dead ended as well. Where you're just kind of add this to the list of things that you're uneasy about, but you don't even know you're uneasy about. Like to the, to the questions we haven't answered that we're not going to answer. That you know, I, I I mean, I I think the critical reception of the movie was not great because people were at the end of it just like, what the hell, you know? So there there was so many. It was like you know, it was like lost in uh, two hours and 20 minutes. Not to, you know, th- that's kind of a, a harsh review of The Shining, but I think maybe that was the original critical interpretation is that it opened um, a lot of threads and or it opened a lot of loops that it didn't close, right? But that is really what I think makes it such a, like a masterful and interactive and mysterious kind of film is that yeah, it the, does that.
0: There's definitely a difference between a film that opens up a lot of loops that it doesn't close simply out of incompetence of the director or, you know, incompetence of the script writer or whatever like that versus if it's being deliberately done to kind of mess with people a bit.
1: Yeah. And is the, is the mirror thing like actually trying to point the audience to something, right? Like the film itself as a mirror, like how 2001, a space odyssey, the monolith, the black monolith that is black, and smooth and non-reflective is the exact same aspect ratio that the film was, you know, shot on, right? What is this thing? Is it like giving some kind of super meaning to to what the what the film is even supposed to be like, you know, people like Wiener said about uh 2001. So, I don't know, but uh it's certainly interesting and yeah, I agree that uh watching the movie again for the first time definitely a while, uh, made me more interested in the novel and and definitely made me interested in Dr. Sleep. And also, I stumbled across yesterday, there's a 2016 film called Operation Avalanche, uh, which is this like fake um, historical reimagining of the CIA going to Kubrick to help them with the moon landing once they realize they can't do it. And it looks like a really great, independent film it got really good reviews but you can find the trailer for it on um on youtube it's called operation avalanche it was 2016 and i never heard of it and it's like the dream movie that i wish <laughs> had been made so um yeah i've got i've got a lot to follow up on here i think i, I mean i I, would, I was about to say i think that's everything but that's not even close to everything but <laughs> that's the time we have right
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, every everything we could say uh, in in ninety minutes, right? Without going completely down the rabbit hole of every hidden numerology message, and you know, starting eventually starting to sound like uh, was it Lewis Farrakhan who always used to have like big long rants about like num numbers of things and letters and finding all these hidden meanings. I, I feel like it was
1: Farrakhan who would do that, but I could. I believe you. I don't, but that yeah, I believe that that's possible. Well, yeah I think that people have a tendency to get a little jack off to this kind of stuff, and um there there are lots of men on the field when it comes to like what does this mean? what is this all about but a, a few people have really stood out at putting putting forth like cohesive singular direction, kind of like maybe this is maybe this is what it means um you know jay Wiedner, jay Dyer uh Rob. Ager are the, the ones that come to mind, but I think of it being more of this panoply kind of like maybe Kubrick was just trying to screw with everybody and put everything in there and like, look, the film is a mirror. Uh, what scares you? What worries you? What makes you paranoid? Here it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I always end up feeling the same way I do about conspiracy theories in in general where um like there's definitely something to some of them, mm. but I don't think they're all true, and I think that, you know, there's always the danger of if you, like, take the red pill versus drinking the whole bottle of red pills kind of thing, right, where, you know, you find some legit things where there are some some hidden meanings and patterns and whatever, and then... The human mind is definitely prone to, right? Just like our ancestors staring at the, st- at the stars and coming up with, Oh, that one's a bear. Oh, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a pot, you know, um, and they're just random stars in the sky. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But we, we are pattern seeking creatures and sometimes that's really useful and important. And sometimes we're finding legit patterns, but then there's always that balancing act between spotting patterns. Um, some of which may be there and be kind of hidden and murky versus starting to see patterns everywhere all the time yeah where
1: they're not yeah
0: where they're not it's, it's it's a delicate balancing act like i don't i don't trust someone who doesn't believe any conspiracy theories and i don't <laughs> right. trust someone who believes all the conspiracy theories
1: yeah i totally i'm in the same place i totally agree well said
0: all right well i guess we'll uh we, we'll call it a day and then uh do our, our utmost to get this thing out in time for halloween possibly the last halloween of all time because then on tuesday uh the apocalypse. The apocalypse is going to kick up into yet another gear because no matter who wins this uh, presidential reality show, yeah, uh, half half the country. No matter who wins, half the country is going to lose their damn mind,
1: basically. So yeah, yep. So uh, enjoy
0: Halloween while you can.
1: Enjoy Halloween while you can. That's a it's a good parting message.
0: All right. Well, Brett, it's been great. It's been fun, as always, talking to you, especially on a on a topic like this. So I really
1: appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on. This was great. I look forward to doing something like this again in the future.
0: I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, There are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, And you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website, to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.